Well, good morning and welcome back to our uh, online edition here of the worship at the Christian Church of Estes Park, where we are disciples of Jesus that build generational, transformational disciples for Jesus. My name is Pastor Aaron, and I'm grateful to have you here today as we continue our series through Isaiah. And I'll tell you, these have been some pretty strange days. We just got an order not very long ago that most of us have to stay home. Fortunately, uh, we were able to continue to broadcast our services to you, and so we're grateful for that. And, and you know, in the of difficult times like this, where things have kind of been uh, changed and challenged, we, we have to ask ourselves sometimes, where is God? And I'm sure some of you might have been asking yourselves that question this week. What is God doing right now? Well, we've had a lot of bad news, so are you ready for some good news? I hope so, because that's what we're going to talk about today, some really amazing news, what God is doing. You will be shocked, and you'll be encouraged by the answer. But to understand the answer, first we have to remind ourselves of our memory verse, which comes to us all the way back from Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet got his call, his commission from God, as he was taken in this to in spirit to the throne room of God and the seraphim were around God's throne not touching the ground covering their faces and saying this holy 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 is the lord almighty the whole earth is full of his glory our god is a holy god so before we go into our message let's just take a second and remind ourselves of this passage i know you're home but just say it along with me here we go Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah 6, 3. I'm sure you sound great, so let's say it again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah 6, 3. And one more time here, let's just test ourselves to get the brains working here in the morning. Here we go. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isn't that a great promise? The Lord our God is holy. He's different than everything else. He's set apart. He's unique. He's pure and wonderful and perfect. And He's not left us on our own. This whole earth, even today, is full of His glory. And today we get to actually see why that's part of God's plan. So if you have your Bible, please open them up to Isaiah chapter 52. And uh, that's going to be on page 511 if you have one of our Bibles there at home. And that's fantastic. If not, also, you know, on our streaming site, uh, there's a link there that you can click that you can open your Bibles up on that if you would like as well. And so we get to Isaiah 52, and remember, when we started the book of Isaiah, uh, how the book is broken up. Isaiah wrote this book over a long period of many, many years, and uh, the first 39 chapters, just like the first 39 books of the Bible, uh, had to do with preparing for uh, the coming of a powerful Messiah, had to do with warning the people the consequences of sin and reminding them of God's justice and warning them that if they did not turn to God, then bad things were happen. And uh, certainly those bad things did happen. Uh, we found the northern ten tribes, which was called Israel, ended up going into captivity in the year 722 B.C. And uh, those northern ten tribes uh, basically disappeared from that point on. And after that point, uh, we find that the southern tribe would eventually go into captivity in the year 586 B.C. And this passage, chapter 40 and on, 
predictively deals with the return of the people from captivity, even though the people didn't return from captivity for over a hundred years after this prophecy was written. In chapter 40, it begins, it says, comfort my people. And all those predictive prophecies that Isaiah does is to comfort us, show us that there is something beyond the captivity. And so we get to Isaiah 52, and we find that, that the prophet predicts God's redemption for His people in the most amazing and unique way, not because of what they deserve, but because who our God is. And so that's where we pick up the story in in Isaiah 52, that Judah would go into captivity for their own sin, but God would deliver them. And He would deliver them not because they deserved it, but because God made a promise to David and Moses and Abraham. And so we see that the people will return. And I think there are times like we're going through right now to remember that today is not forever, that sometimes the difficult things, they are there and they're real, but they don't last. Every trial has a beginning and every trial has an end. And there's a God who carries us through them. And so while Isaiah 51, 52, 53 deal with the return, it also talks about an even greater salvation. And so in verse 13, We get to it and we read, it says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up highly and highly exalted. That we see in this particular passage that we're talking about his servant, that God through Isaiah is predicting the Messiah and that the Messiah will surely come. In the midst of Isaiah knew that they were going to go into a long period of difficult time of captivity where God would seem very distant and things were very scared. But he goes to prophesy and say that's not going to be the end. That God is still at work and he's doing something even in this. And the Messiah will surely come. Salvation is on his way. And this Messiah will be known by some things. He he will be faithful. He'll be a servant of God. He will be wise and he will be righteous. Just as we remember the prophecies all the way back from this ninth chapter of Isaiah that said that a child will be born, a son will be given, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor and a Mighty God, an Everlasting Father, and a Prince of Peace. He's going to be everything we need and perfect. And while it's all wonderful, it says even this, that he's going to be highly exalted, lifted up, and honored. And this is everything we would expect from Messiah. But then we read verse 14, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It says, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of a human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. What happened to this exalted servant of God? Something that we didn't expect. That that Isaiah prophesies God's at work, but it's not going to be the way that you think he's going to need to work. That this Messiah is going to come, he's going to be exalted, he's going to be righteous, but he's also going to be disfigured. He's going to be beat up. He's going, to be, uh, he's going to be destroyed so badly that people will just not even want to look at him. 
But that's not the end of the story. Somehow through his suffering, we see the, the promise that, that he is going to somehow sprinkle many nations. That's another way of saying he's going to, to purify, make holy all kinds of people. The entire world will be benefited and blessed because and through his suffering. And even that, it goes on, it says that, that kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. That even the Gentiles will somehow know about this Jewish Messiah. That they'll be shocked and, and dismayed by what happened to him. And made silent. And they will also begin to understand the glory of what God is doing. What a crazy prophecy. I mean, if you read this and it doesn't make much sense. That God is going to save his people by sending him a perfect person who is going to be beat up. A one who will cause people to be ashamed. And somebody that is going to have a bunch of fame despite the fact that his own people are embarrassed by him, that the kings of other nations who have not even heard about him will somehow find out about him. It sounds crazy. It sounds crazy. And you know what? Isaiah agreed. In 53 verse 1, he says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? <laughs> this is just crazy. When God says, I'm going to interact, I'm going to do I'm going to work amongst you. It's not all going to look the way that we think it should. God's ways don't oftentimes make sense to us. And why is that? Why is it that God, when, he, when He's at work, when he, when he works in our lives, it doesn't look like we think it should work? Because God is not like us. God is holy. That means different, unlike anything else. He is unique. He is pure. He is all wise. See, God doesn't ask us to understand. And He oftentimes doesn't even explain. But He simply asks us to trust. He says, this is what I'm doing. And I want you to trust me. Trust that I am good. And why do we trust that God is good when life is bad? <laughs> well, because God is the definition of good. We, have, we know what good is because of who God is. Because of that, He can't be anything but good. And though we may not understand the fullness of His goodness in the moment, it is always revealed in the end. And so, God says, I want you to trust me. I'm at work doing something for you, something amazing, something that's going to have worldwide fames, that, that my servant will come, my Messiah will definitely be there. I'm, at a, I'm doing something awesome in a rescue, and it's not going to be how you would expect it. But this is how it's going to happen. And so in verse 2, chapter 53, it says this is how the Messiah is going to show up. It says, He grew up before Him, that's God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of the ground. And I say, what do you mean? He's going to grow up like a shoot uh, out of the ground. Well, remember all the way back, all the way back to the very beginning of Isaiah's ministry, Isaiah 6, where we have that passage, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And Isaiah, he's standing before the throne of God. 
right? And God says, you know, he, he's saying before God and he sees all of this. He sees the seraphim, the flaming beings before God and their holiness, not even able to look at God and declaring how amazing God is. And he stands there, he says, woe to me, I'm doomed. I'm a man of unclean lips and I lived amongst people of unclean lips. I'm undone. I've seen the Lord. And the seraph takes a tong and grabs a coal from the holy altar and touches his lips and makes him holy. And then God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, well, I've been made holy now. I've been made right. Here I am. Send me. And God says, all right, I want you to go. I want you to go to the people and I want you to proclaim a message, but they're not going to get it. They're not going to understand and they're not fully going to believe you. Ultimately, uh, they're going to reject all of this, but I still want you to go. And Isaiah asks this in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, how long then shall I have my ministry, Lord? How long shall I go and proclaim to people who aren't even going to listen? And God says, until there's really... No one left. (laughs) That's the faithfulness of our God. Until there's no one left to listen, Isaiah. I want you to proclaim my goodness. But the part of that I want you to look at is that very last line. It says that God says, until there's no one left, and everything's laid waste, and it all looks done. It says that I want you to be there. But as Tabernacle and the oak leaf stumps, when they're cut down, just like it looks like everything's dead, so the holy seed will be the stump and the land. That's the tender shoot. That's the prediction that the Messiah will come from the remnant. The Messiah will come from the people of Israel who went to captivity but will return back home. And not only that, the Messiah will be rooted where? In the holy land, in the promised land. And so the Messiah is going to grow up right there. And what do we find? Well, another passage that we had, we talked about the previous week, that uh, he would grow up in the land of Zebulun, which is Nazareth, and the land of Nephtali, which is Galilee. (laughs) That we find that the Messiah is going to be brought up in Nazareth and Galilee. And as he's there, Nazareth and Galilee, and as he grows up amongst them, we find that He's not going to be the type of leader that everybody was expecting. The second half of verse 52, or uh, verse 2, said he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He's not going to be rich. He's he's not going to come from a family that that everyone's going to know. He's going to be basically a nobody. And he's not even going to have the things that in life that we would look at that, that as humans we lift up as celebrity. No majesty, no fame, no, not even great looks. Nothing that humans would point to as strength. In fact, it gets even worse. Instead of just being this plain and ordinary guy, we read the next verse, verse 3. It says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. But this Messiah, this champion that God is sending, It's going to be a rejected servant. It's going to be a sufferer. And he's going to be rejected by all kinds of people, by humanity. That's a pretty big thing, to be rejected by humanity. And he's going to be condemned. He's going to be considered an embarrassment by his people. He's like one where people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in lowest state. We're going to be embarrassed by him. His own people won't even want to take him as his own, as their own. And why would God do this? In the midst of it, it makes no sense. 
You're going to set him aside. We would think, send in a guy who's going to, you're coming, and he's going he's gonna to kick butt. He's going to do awesome. That's what we would look for, right? That is what we would look for. But this, a plain, ordinary guy that's not even good looking, that doesn't have any, you know, anything that's really, we would say, going for him. And then he comes in, and it's not like, well, at least the people like him. They're like, no, the people hate him. And the whole world pretty much hates him. Everybody's embarrassed by him. What? Why would he do that? Read verse 4. This Messiah has something he's doing. It says, verse 4, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and, inf- and afflicted. You understand that, that this Messiah who is coming, that God sent this, this exalted and good and perfect and righteous one, He's going to suffer not because of anything he had done. We are the cause of his suffering. He bore our suffering upon him. And he would think that if a righteous person came and suffered for us, we would at least have some gratitude, but no. It said instead of being gratitude, that people will look down their noses at him. Say, well, he deserves it. See, nothing about this so far, nothing about this makes sense. Even still, look at verse 5. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That God's righteous servant will suffer for the sinful masses. For the broken, he will come to bring healing. He'll be pierced for our transgressions. And I want you to think for a second. Obviously, this applies to Jesus, right? But remember that this was written over 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. This was written before crucifixion was even invented. And yet he'd be pierced for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. He will die because of our wickedness. He will be killed because of our ignorance. And yet, while how broken and awful that is, God has been at work. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of of all the things to the contrary, God is at work. See, the effect of his death will be something amazing. It says, by his wounds, we are healed. The effect of his death will result in life for the broken. We continue to read the next verse. It says, we like sheep have all gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All of us. He said, I've been asked this question several times this last week. Why does God allow good people to suffer? And the answer is, he doesn't. Well, he did just once. And he allowed one good person to suffer for all the rest of us who really aren't all that good. Look at you and me. Have we obeyed God perfectly? Has any of us without sin at home? Look at our nation, all of the wonderful things that we have and all the blessings that we have in the midst of this this difficult time. We cry out to God and we say, help us, believing that he'll hear us and he'll restore us. But why do we do that? Have we been so righteous? 
Is not the earth cursed because of the blood of so many innocents that we'd slaughter? We we, we parade our sin under a banner of pride, and then we ask God to rescue us. How is it that God could know our own hearts? The ways that we have put Him on trial, and we have, we'll say, God, I don't agree with your word. I don't agree with what you say is right and wrong. I'm going to follow my own heart. And we condemn God. And yet, we still turn to Him and we're angry when bad things happen in our lives. We have hijacked this world from Him. Why does God allow good people to suffer? He doesn't. He allows us, you and me, broken people, to suffer. We broke this world. He made paradise. We stole it from Him. There are no good people. Just like sheep, we've all gone astray. Everyone do his own way. Everyone doing what was right in their eyes. And the picture is perfect. Can you imagine sheep standing there with a the shepherd and little Baba black sheep thinking, oh, I've got an idea. I'm going to go and I'm going to graze on the other side of this fence because the grass is better there. And so that's what the black sheep wants to do. And so he just takes off and the shepherd's like, don't go over there. And sure enough, finds himself stuck in the fence or has got some kind of wolf coming after him. And he's like, oh, I thought it was the best thing to do. And now I'm in trouble. We are senseless sometimes, blind to what God says is right. We're broken. Our hearts are broken. Not saddened, but broken in that we don't understand what is truly right and truly good. And so God let a good person suffer. He sent his righteous servant to come to do what none of us would really do. He suffered and died for our sins, and we're the ones who killed him. And in spite of the fact that we mocked him on his way to the cross, in spite of the fact that we've mocked him for centuries afterwards, in spite of the fact that we mock him still today, he still came and he still died on behalf of us, a broken people. We deserve hell, and yet we live here. And more than that, he's given us not what we deserve. He didn't come to save us because we were great. (laughs) He doesn't send us and give us what we deserve. He gives us grace and mercy. In verse 7 and 8, it describes this even more. It says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. I think about when we are suffering, how quickly are we to judge God and say, why are you allowing this to happen? I imagine like, and I've been there too. Lord, we've been trying to do these things. What did I do to deserve this? (laughs) What have I done to deserve anything good from God? And yet he gives me good things. (laughs) That unlike me, that when Jesus came and when he suffered on behalf of my sins, and faced the ridicule of this world, he didn't even defend himself. He didn't lift his fist to God and say, oh, what did he say? Father, forgive them. I don't get it what they're doing. But he was suffering for sins he didn't commit. He was suffering for people who hated him. But he did it willingly. He did it without protest. And that is pretty amazing. That the only good person who ever has suffered didn't complain. 
He's a good God. He's unlike us. I would think that you would agree with me that this Savior is holy. He's different. Not what we expected, but precisely what we needed. In verse 9, it says that he's not just going to be hurt and wounded. He's going to be dead. That, that we will absolutely kill this Messiah. In verse 9, something crazy, it says that, it says that he will be assigned a grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence or was there any deceit in his mouth, it's not fair. And have you uttered those words? Have you said to God, it's not fair? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, life's not fair. Nothing about this is fair. Jesus suffered unfairly. For since he didn't commit, he was given capital punishment for doing nothing wrong. And even he, just like while he was on the cross, he didn't lift his hand or his fist to others and say, God, this is so unfair. He trusted that God, whom he is part of, was doing something amazing. And strangely enough, it says that after he dies, strange and weird things will happen to him. First, he'll be buried as a fugitive. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. That as he's buried, there's not going to be a lot of honor in it. He's going to be buried as one who was a criminal, even though he wasn't a criminal. That's a strange prediction, but it gets weirder. It says after that, and with the rich in his death, though he's buried with, as a criminal, he's going to also be buried in a rich man's tomb, though we know he had no majesty or anything to draw people to him. He wasn't wealthy. So here you have the common, ordinary, good, righteous servant dying as a criminal and being buried as a criminal in a wealthy person's tomb. That's just strange. Why then? Why then would God make this strange prophecy? Why would he tell the Messiah, like, this is what's going to happen? The reason is so we would know who the Messiah is. Because this kind of stuff doesn't just normally happen. In verse 10, it says that God wasn't absent from this. In spite of all the brokenness and all the things that were wrong, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And I want you to think about that for a second. That God wasn't in there doing what was fair. God was doing what was right, what was needed. He allowed the righteous one to suffer for the unrighteous, the godly for the ungodly. God, it was his desire to do this. And there was a reason for it. Because through him, the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. And to understand that, you have to go back to the old sacrificial system of of the law that sin required death. And so every year the high priest would would sacrifice an animal for the sins of the people, would take the blood and sprinkle it there on the mercy seat of the altar. But we know that the blood of bulls and goats never is enough to really take away sin. And so God was just storing up those the, the, the faith of the people who put their trust in God to someday save them, he sent the perfect sacrifice. And as John the Baptist declared, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God didn't just want the suffering servant to suffer because God wanted him to suffer. God allowed the suffering servant to suffer because it was the thing that was necessary so that our sins could be atoned for, that they could be taken away. This was God's plan. In the midst of brokenness, he used brokenness 
to break brokenness and to bring about a great healing. It was his plan to save us, you and me, as wicked and as far away from God as we have been. And the thing that's so amazing about this is normally through all of the sacrificial systems from the very begin, beginning when Moses started them all the way through to the time of Christ, every single bull and every single lamb and every single goat that was put to death and that was sacrificed on behalf of the people to make atonement for sins, every one of them stayed dead. The death usually was the end of the story. But here we find something strange. It's not the end of the story. In verse 11, it says, after he has suffered, and I would think that would be, of course, after death, the next verse, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. <laughs> that this suffering righteous servant is going to suffer and die for all people, be dead, buried dead, and then it's going to be resurrected. What? And not only that, that he's going to see the light of life. He will be resurrected. He'll be satisfied. He will be, after he's brought back up, he will then receive the glory and the good things before him for being righteous. But then what happens is, by knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities. Another way of saying that by knowledge, by faith, he will save a lot of people. That the way to salvation, like it has always been, will be by God's grace through faith in him by knowledge of this servant. And so to call upon him and say, I believe, let's be saved. So I want to take a look at the promise again. This, this strange promise, this prediction from Isaiah, several hundred years, 700 years before it came to pass. What was prophesied in this passage? That after the people came back from their, uh, from their exile, after they come back from Babylon, it says that a righteous Jew would be executed for the sins of the world. That's a strange prediction. And beyond that, it says that this, this person that was rejected and is executed will be rejected by his own generation. And if that was enough, he'll be accused of working against God. People will say that he's dying because uh, he's blasphemous. He's working against what God wants, even though he's doing exactly what God had called him to. And more than that, he will not only be accused of working against God, he will be brutally executed as a criminal. The passage goes on. There are some other things it says is that he will be buried with the rich after he's dead. He's going to be raised back to life afterwards, which is a pretty specific uh, prediction there. And that many will be saved by faith in him. And finally, that his fame and his salvation will be known to all nations, that even kings and places that the whole world had never even heard of him before will come to know him. That's a pretty amazing prediction. 700 years before Jesus walked on this earth. That's why the point of this is this, that God's salvation is holy. God's salvation doesn't make sense to us. The way that God works, and it's not just our spiritual salvation, it's God's work in our life. That God's at work in ways that we can't fully comprehend or understand. And we're going to talk about that even more next week with like a really good passage that's in there. But right now, the good news is this, that you're not saved because you're good. You're not saved because you deserve it. God is not going to rescue us as a people because somehow we've earned his favor. See, the gospel makes no sense to us as people. It, it's not like other religions that say, do these certain things and then appease God, and then maybe he'll be good enough to you. He might hear your prayers. This says, we have all gone astray like silly little sheep. <laughs> but our God's going to come. 
that we could be even so bad as to kill the Messiah. And even in that, his death for us, the unfair death would bring about our justification. That our God will come to a broken people and will destroy our brokenness. Not because of us or anything that we have done, but because of him. Because his promises are true. Because he keeps his word. And because he loves us so much. And that we can be saved simply by believing in this Messiah. Trusting in his holy name. And then, of course, 700 years when Jesus came. 700 years later, when Jesus walked the earth, and he came and he fulfilled every one of these prophecies and 300 more, he was put to death and he raised again. And then the church began. And in Acts chapter 4, we see one of the first sermons from the early church, and Peter declares to the Sanhedrin, the, the, the council of the Jewish leaders, he declares to them, your Messiah has come. And he says this, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That God's salvation is available today. It's, it has nothing to do with, with how good you are or how worthy you are. And for us as a nation, isn't it great to know that God is... He sees our wickedness and He lets us live. That God doesn't just save people because of what we can do for them. God saves us because He loves us. Our God is holy. He is different than us. What person would have devised this plan? It makes no sense. And yet He fulfilled it. And if God fulfilled this promise that He would send a suffering servant, a perfect one, a child that would also be called an everlasting father, a mighty God and a prince of peace, that God would put on flesh, that He would walk in this world and would die on our behalf, if He keeps that promise, He will keep all the other ones as well. And one of the great things, He says, listen, if you are like, uh, if you are me, if you're with me, if you come to me in faith, you will be saved. That, that once we are saved, he says, you will be my children. And as his children, he says, you will fall under my protection now and my provision now. Unlike the rest of the world, I will be at work in your life. And that's always going to be the way that you think I'm going to operate. But I'm going to be at work. I'm going to be at work in your life and for you. He's given us promises for this life that he will come and dwell every believer. Not just live by them, but in us. That he will transform us from the inside out. Take these broken hearts and mend them. That he will rewrite his goodness, his laws upon our hearts. That we will agree with him whether it's truly good is good. But he does that. God does that. That he would never leave us nor forsake us. That if we seek his kingdom and his righteousness above all else, that he'll provide all of our needs. God's Protection is a holy protection, and His promise is a holy promise. And the name of Jesus is a holy name. It's not like any other name, because Jesus is not like anyone else. Jesus is the suffering servant, declared and promised so long ago. He is God made flesh. He is the sacrifice for our sins. He is the one who made atonement for it all. He is the one who has also been resurrected. And in a couple weeks, we're going to celebrate that on Resurrection Sunday. But I would say, why don't we also celebrate that today? I think when we come to a passage like this in Isaiah 52 and 53, we come to it and it, it, it just, 
It demands an answer. It demands an action. So what can we do? I think in times like this, where everything else has been stripped away, I am preaching to an empty room, except for Zach. (laughs) But I'm preaching to a crazy empty room, but I'm not preaching to an empty room. I'm preaching to all the people that God has put before me through the wonderful thing of the internet, that at times like this, when everything's as topsy-turvy, everything's to be taken away, we can't go to movie theaters, so we can't have our, our movie icons. We can't go to sports stadiums and have our sports icons. We can't just go to our jobs and, and have those. Everything seems disrupted and topsy-turvy. Isn't it awesome that we have a God who is still on the throne? And that He is powerful and He is good and He is with us and His promises have not been forsaken, that He has not broken His promises ever and He will never break His promises, which means that He tells us today we can come to Him and we can be saved in His name. And so what, is, what should we do with that? Trust in Christ for salvation. If, if you are listening today and you have never in your life come to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you haven't come to God and said, I need your salvation, now is the time. Does He have your attention yet? He moved heaven and earth and He came for you. And as the Scripture prophesied over 700 years, you can be saved by God's grace through your faith in Jesus Christ. The suffering servant promised predicted, prophesied, fulfilled. And how is that faith expressed? Because faith is invisible. It's kind of weird. Can't find faith in a bottle. And so the New Testament tells us how we're supposed to express that faith. So we're supposed to express that faith by believing in God. That's trusting in our heart and our mind. We're going to have doubts. And, And we will, and we should have doubts because God's bigger than our brains and the way that he works doesn't make sense to us. And so yes, today you will have doubts. How did God do this? How did Jesus do this? Well, you have doubts? Yes, Believing is saying, in spite of those doubts, I have enough to trust. I'm going to just say, I'm going to trust Him, to believe in Him. But as we believe in Him, we also then, if we believe that Jesus really is the Messiah, that God exists and He loves us and He's going to carry us and He's a good God, then we need to repent. We need to stop living our lives like we're the God of our lives. We need to start living like Jesus is the Lord of our life. That's an act of faith. It's saying, no, you know what? The way that I was living, the way that we have been living led to a false sense of security. I'm ready for something different. I'm going to trust what God says is right is right, and what God says is wrong is wrong, and God, I'm going to trust God to direct and lead my life and to guide me. And it may not always make sense to me, but I know He's good, and I know that what He does is always redemptive. And so that's repentance, is turning and trusting Him. Another thing that for an expression of faith is confession. It's, it's to identify with is what that word really means. It's like when I put on my, my Estes Park Bobcat sweatshirt, I'm saying I'm identifying with them. I'm confessing the Bobcats. But even better, God says, you can put on my name. That we could be called Christians, like little Christs. We could follow after him. We can, we can identify with them and think how amazing it is that God would want to identify with you and me, which is pretty cool. And so we say, he is my Lord and my Savior. I'll confess him with my lips and with my life. Another way he wants us to express our faith is by being baptized. And that means to be immersed in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a way of us saying that our sins have been washed off of us and that we live in a new life, a public declaration of that. 
And baptism, an expression of faith that says, I have died to my old self and all that stuff. Like, like Jesus died for me. I'm letting all of my sin die and I'm being raised again, born again into a new life, into his family as God's own child to be baptized in, into the kingdom. Into a new life. Something else that we're supposed to do is to be discipled. And Jesus said to his disciples, those he made disciples before he was ascended to heaven, he came to him and says, all right, disciples, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to all people, all nations, and I want you to bring in the faith, baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so part of an act of faith is to be part of a living and active church. And so right now, yes, you're separated in a home, but if you're here, we invite you to be part of this church family. And when all of this craziness is done, let's come back together and let's grow together. And let's learn how to follow Christ as he rewrites his law into our life and we have a new life in him. Let's live the better life together in community as his family, as he called us to do. And so maybe that's where you are today. Maybe where you are today is you need to come to Christ for the very first time, to trust in Christ for your salvation, to believe and confess and repent and be baptized and be discipled. Start now. Start with belief. If that's you, I think on our website, there's a place that you could say, you know, I'm ready to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Or in the connection card, there's a place there. But if you, if, you, if you have that, please let me know as your pastor. I want to help you take those next steps of repentance, confession, baptism, discipleship. You can live the full life that God has for you. We don't want you to become a convert. We want you to become a new creature, a part of this church, a new being, born again into a wonderful new life of peace and hope in the midst of a pretty broken world. A person that is born from, from this false sense of security in this world into one who has eternal security, not just forever, but also for today. If you're ready to make that decision, please let me know. There's a connection card. It's either in the description link below. There's a tab for it or whatever. Let me know. Let me know your name. Let me get your phone number, your email address, so we can reach out to you. We can help you take those next steps of faithfulness as well so that you can live this new life. But if you're already in Christ, You've already came to him. You're born again. You're part of the kingdom. Then the action is to trust in Jesus and Christ for your salvation, not just the eternal, but today. I mean, if God is going to save us for our souls, can we not also trust his promise for today? Is he not big enough to keep his word? Like he said in Matthew where he gets his sermon on the mount, and then he says, listen, look at the world and all of the people in the world, all of the pagans running about trying to take care of themselves, worrying about all the time what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, what they're going to wear, all of that takes their minds. He says, you don't have to be that way anymore. You don't have to live like that. He says, but seek my kingdom, my righteousness above all else, and everything you need will be taken care of you, for you. That God will carry us. And God will carry you. So maybe it's begin trusting in Christ in this time to resist the temptation to take the reins back, to grab the steering wheel again, to say, God, I'm going to do things my way for a while until it's not good, you know, until things are, are better. Maybe right now is your test of faith and say, I'm going to become more faithful in the midst of this. I'm not going to back off. I'm going to trust God. It's not fair what's happening to me. And it's probably not. And it's not comfortable what's happening to you. And it sure it isn't. But our God is still God. And he still loves you. And he's still there to save you. And he's never left you. And he will never forsake you. And it has nothing to do with how good or bad you are. It has everything to do with who he is and how much he loves you. And boy, oh boy, does he love you. So today, maybe it's trusting in Christ. 
trusting in Christ today. And so on your connection card, which is in there, I've got a couple things, some next steps for you to take. The first one is, why don't you memorize Isaiah 6.3? In the midst of crazy days like this, isn't it good that our God is holy? He's different than the rest of the world. He saves unlike everything in the rest of the world. He's able to deliver us unlike anything else in the rest of the world. Our God is holy, holy, holy. That he's bigger than our brains and he's bigger than our problems. <laughs> Let me take some time and remind yourself of that. So we stop asking these silly questions. Why is God allowing me to suffer? Well, Jesus suffered and he suffered for us. But if God's going to allow us to suffer, he's going to do something redemptive with it. So remind yourself of that, that God is at work right now, even if you don't see him, even if he's not doing things the way you would think to be done. He's probably doing a lot better. So maybe memorize and spend time with that. How about this? Why don't you read Isaiah chapters 45 through 55? We just talked about some of those today to prepare you for our message next week, which is going to be in Isaiah 55. We talk about how God's hope is holy. Or in there, of course, if you need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let me know. For all of us that are in Christ, the thing this week, can we trust in God? Really trust in Him. That means let's go to Him, pray, let's do what He asks, let's spend time with Him. Let's turn to Him in the midst of this difficult time so that we can find the stability that we need. Our God is good. So those are the commitments I'm asking you to make. And so just take a second right now and make sure you fill out your connection card and online. If you, uh, We're going to take an offering in just a second as well. Got to do that digitally. So... Uh, Right now, there's a tab there. You can go to funchurch.com and and give, right? Trust in the Lord. Continue to be faithful in the midst of this and allow us as a church to come together and to help one another at first, all the members of our church as well as in this community. Let's do that. But more than anything, from this time, let's leave with joy. Let's leave with with trust in God and let's leave uh, this time uh, clinging again to that wonderful salvation that we have in Jesus. So let me bring this time to a close and we'll have a worship song and uh, to kind of remind us again the joy that we have of Christ and I'll just have a couple of words for you afterwards. So let's just join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for our commitments and, and for our offering. Let's pray. Father God, powerful God, good God, amazing God, Lord, uh, lift us up in this time. Help our church to trust you. Help the gospel to go forth in this community and beyond. Father, I pray for those that this message has reached their ears, whether they're part of the Estes Park community or beyond, Father. You have appointed this time and this space. And so if there is anyone who is there that has listened to these words that needs salvation in Jesus, I pray that, you, that your Holy Spirit would prompt them, give them the courage to say yes to you. Now, Father, for those of us that are in Christ in this time that may be in crisis, Lord, that I pray that you would help us through these times, help us to turn to you and not away from you, that your purposes may be fulfilled in us and through us and for your glory. Father, we pray for the commitments that we've making today. Help us to keep those this week, even though we're home. Help us to keep them in a way that brings joy and, and gladness and light in this world. And Father, I pray too, Lord, uh, for our offerings that we, we give, we send in, uh, Lord, that uh, you would use them to build up your kingdom, that you allow those funds not just to, to serve in this church, but through this church to meet the needs of our community in this time of suffering. Lord, would you bless us with that? Father, again, I thank you for this time that we got to come together and bring you praise, for you are our great God, our wonderful Savior, who brings us such a holy and amazing salvation. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.